I, uh, I, I'm excited about today. If you guys were here last week, last week was somewhat heavy. I mean, it's not every week we gather and recognize that God will, through the power of his Holy Spirit, kill one of his followers. And so we dealt with that last week in Acts chapter 5. This week, we're going to, it's amazing how Scripture works. In one moment, in one verse, we're admonished, and in the next verse, we're encouraged. And how that all comes together to feed us and grow us. And so this morning's just fun. I'm just going to tell you, it's just fun because what we're going to be able to do this morning is to just step back and recognize the power and authority of our God. And it should just be fun for us. I I hope we get to kind of leave and give each other a high five and be like, our God is so big. And this this came to my mind a couple weeks ago. I was driving my six-year-old to school, and on the way, she brought up this ridiculous cardinal that's at our house. It's I call it a demon bird. That's why it's, it's red, I think. And there's a cardinal that has decided that it loves its own reflection. So it goes to our window and begins to peck at the window. I think uh, it, it, it's trying to find a mate with the window. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. So this has been going on for a month. I've got video of it on my phone. You can walk right up to the window. You can, I mean, he's just become like a pet. And my wife will not let me shoot it. I don't even know if you can shoot a cardinal. If, if you can't, I, I don't intend to. I'm just, I'm just talking. Um, but it's annoying because as soon as the sun comes up, you hear peck, 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 peck. And you do not hear the pecking stop until the sun goes down. And so it's been a very annoying. And so my daughter has picked up that this bird annoys me as well. And so we're driving to school and she says, Dad that bird. And I'm like, I know, right? And so I start to complain about the bird because I like to complain. I know nobody else does, but I do. And so I'm complaining about the bird and my daughter says, look, dad, he just has a little brain. It's just a little bird. It's not that smart. And I thought, well, that because me, I have to critically analyze everything. It's a curse. I don't know. So I'm like, well, Lena, what, what about whales? I mean, why aren't whales just incredibly smart? She immediately replies back, well, Dad, whales don't have brains. And I said, yeah, they do. She goes, no, they don't. So we argued about it. And then my six-year-old says, Dad, ask Google. Google knows almost everything. God knows everything, and Google knows almost everything. Which I thought was kind of cool that my daughter recognized that God is supreme and knows everything, but a little bit alarming that right under God is Google. And so this is, this is what's happening. And so I Google it, and it responds in my phone. And I don't know what type of well it is, but it comes back and it says that this well has a brain eight times larger than the human brain. My daughter was, like, just amazed. Like, this is incredible. And without hesitation... She says, well, it has a big brain, but little thoughts. I thought, if there was ever a description of me, that might be it. (laughs) Big big brain, little thoughts. And 
I think something, something happens to us as we get older, and I am, listen, I'm about to acknowledge one of, I, I think really, if, uh, sincerely, one of the great sins in my life and a, and a great stronghold that I must fight. As we get older, I think we lose our sense of wonder. We, we lose our sense of awe. Have you ever noticed this happens? I mean, I'm kind of an old soul. I, I just, I mean, I, I just lose my sense of awe after a while. God has given me the great opportunity to literally travel around the world and equip the church. I mean, I've seen the Himalayas. I've got to see so many different cultures and so many different things. And the truth is, I just want to go home. When we're young, anything is wowing. I mean, remember when you were little and you would get to go to the beach? You would see the ocean, and it was just, I mean, it was majestic. See, as we get older, it's not just routine. Listen, it's not just routine that decreases our awe and our wonder. Can I tell you what it is? It is a sinful dependence, an independence in us. That as we get older, we have the illusion that we are more and more in control. And the things that we see and we experience can just be rationalized and explained so quickly that we lose our sense of awe and wonder. And sometimes I think it just does me well to open up the scriptures and read and meditate on the wowing authority of one God who is supreme, who has created and actively sustains all life from a thought. To recognize the authority of God in our lives and in our world to be wowed by his creation, to be in awe of his attributes, to not just seeing that the authority, the name of Jesus is enough to heal or enough to raise from the dead, but to give over our thoughts, not to how that might benefit us, but by what that means for him. Awe, wonder, And so this morning, we're going to be able to look through Acts. And it's one of the few mornings that by design, we're looking in a few different sections of Acts. We're we're going to chase a theme a little bit this morning. And so we're going to specifically look in Acts chapter 5, chapter 9, and chapter 19. And what we're going to chase is we're going to see God supernaturally work in the life of the early church through signs and wonders that are frankly unexplainable. They're beyond a quick, rational explanation. They are miracles. And as we do so this morning, the the central theme that I want to be in your minds and your hearts is the God who is capable at any moment of doing something so beyond us, so beyond nature, so beyond our ability to rationalize and to think that God loves you. Loves you. Fights for you. 
that God this morning may be for the first time really, truly revealing himself to you. So Acts chapter 5, verse 12, and we're just going to read through uh, these three sections in Scripture, and you're going to be getting to see these descriptions of these signs and these wonders, and we'll take some moments and stop along the way and break it down, but just give your imagination, give your sense of awe over to these sections of Scripture. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, we were here last week. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now signs and wonders, again, this is a, a theme we're chasing throughout Acts. And as you've been reading and studying through uh, Acts, I hope you see this is happening a lot in the early church. There are a lot of signs and a lot of wonders and I want you to be at awe at the authority and the power of God and they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico now I'm going to chase a rabbit just for a moment because I think this is important that we see this throughout the book of Acts our culture begins or is continuing to become more individualistic that means we naturally reject corporate and authority more and more this is a transition. It, it has strengths and weaknesses to it, but just note that it is happening. What I want you to recognize is the church gathered together, the large corporate gathering of the church. It says they were all together in Solomon's portico. This is an outdoor place. They're there. They're able to gather together. They did also gather in small groups, but listen, the church throughout the book of Acts also gather corporately, collectively, in large assemblies, all together. And see, I think as our culture begins to shift more individualistic, we will be tempted to neglect the corporate gathering. We will think we can have church just with that small group of people just like us. That what we are doing this morning isn't that important, but I want you to know and I want you to see it happen regularly throughout the New Testament early church they gathered regularly in large groups and frankly they did so much more frequently than we even do today I mean when we recognize they were devoted to the apostles teaching they're not like us they can't just go back and read their Bible somewhere they had to gather around an apostle there were thousands of believers they're just a handful of apostles even if they all divided out, I mean, you're talking about like one to 500. I don't know too many dudes in first century Israel that had a house that's going to just facilitate 500 people. That's tough, right? And so what I want you to see is this large-scale corporate gathering is important, and it's reinforced through the early church. Verse 13, none of the rest dare join them, the unbelievers, but people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. 
and they were all healed. See, there's a supernatural movement that is happening here. It's the early church growing, and they're growing as the Holy Spirit is resourcing them through these amazing signs, through these wowing wonders. This is a theme. The movement continues by the time we get to Acts chapter 9. And again, we're just picking out a few of these descriptions of these miraculous wonders. In Acts chapter 9, verse 32, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydia. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw him. And they turned to the Lord. There were people who were gathering around the apostles. They're beginning to gather around the, the service, if you will, the gathering of the church because they wanted to be healed. I want you to pay attention to something as we read these passages. God delights in our healing. But God's primary purpose is not the individual healing of these that are afflicted. Let me say it again. God's primary purpose in the temporary healing of these people and even us today is not the individual healing of our personal afflictions. Have you ever thought about for a moment, why even bother? I mean, you're sick, you don't want to be sick. You pray to be healed because you'd like to be healed. But do any of us know anybody that's like a thousand-year-old that just keeps being healed and healed because their faith is so great they just walk with the Lord? You ever wonder then why this happens? See, what I want you to see is there a, there's a purpose in these signs and in these wonders that is beyond just the individual healing of a man or a woman. I want you to notice how these signs reveal the gospel. How these signs give testimony to who God is first and his authority in our lives. I mean here it says all the residents they turned to the Lord. These signs, these wonders gave testimony of who God is. They revealed him. Verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. By the way, one of, trends come and they go. All right, trends come and they go. One of the things that breaks my heart, for, like by the time my daughter is older, I don't know how many good Southern Baptist churches will have the Dorcas class still going. It's going to be few. But I mean, I was a kid, like, why are there always these classes, the Dorcas class? It just seemed like the weirdest thing to me. If you ever wanted to know 
you have a little bit of church history there, and you've kind of grown up in one of those Baptist churches, and they, they had their Dorcas class. This is, this is kind of the foundation of that class. Anyway, some of you are looking at me like I have no idea what he's talking about. That, see, that's, that's just a shame. Anyway, <laughs> she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. All right, that's about 12 miles, okay? give you an idea, they don't have cars, so they're not just going to drive there. That's roughly like from here to the Johnson City Mall. All right, it's about the same. So think about this, it's about a three hours walk there, and if he leaves immediately, it's about a three hours walk back. So it's six hours. Point is, she's going to be dead a while. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside. I want to just pause for just for, I mean, we're, we're celebrating having a fun morning. I, I, I don't know that this is necessarily the case. I think there's a little humor in this passage. I, I mean, think about this. They've wanted to get Peter to come back. And Peter's in the room. And I got all these, all these women around who were friends and knew her and like, look, look, she made this. And they're, I mean, they're heartbroken. They're, they're going over their stuff and like, look, she made this, right? Like, the, I mean, let me translate. Like, look, these are, like, these are her essential oils she gave me, right? And they're, they're all going on about what she was and what she did. And Peter, a man after my own heart. Y'all need to get out of here. I love that. You can interpret however you want. Um, it's just good. All right. So Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning the body, or turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand. And raised her up. Point out the obvious. She was dead. She is now alive. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many, remember the theme, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Again, many believe. Acts chapter 19, we continue to see this theme, this anointing on the ministry of the apostles. And here we're going to see this anointing on the apostles, not just confined to Peter, but also stretching to Paul. Also stretching to Paul, Acts chapter 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, another apostle. 
Verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Some, then some of the itinerant Jews, Jewish exorcists, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure, I command you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, this isn't, catch this real quick. These people, they're not Christians. They're not Jesus followers. They do not think Jesus is the Messiah. But they kind of got this ritualistic thing going on to try to get rid of these demons. And so they're trying to find some name with some authority to make this go their way. So they, they say, listen, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Man, I'm just going to tell you something. I've never had a conversation with a demon. If I did, and he ended the sentence with, who are you? I'm pretty afraid in that moment. I know Jesus. I recognize Paul. But who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Listen, you get a beat down if you have to run out naked. All right, let's just acknowledge that's a beat down. If you're running out of the house naked, you've had it handed to you pretty good and that's what's happening here. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now listen to the response. And fear, we talked about this last week, healthy worship in this. A recognition, an awe, a wonder, a reverence. And fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers, came. So these are people who have already professed Jesus. They've already placed saving faith in Jesus. And they come here and they confess and they divulge their practices, verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them. And found it came to about 50,000 pieces of silver. We'll come back to that later. So the word, the revelation of who God is, the gospel, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Isn't this exciting to see the power of our God? 
Let's break down a few things. Let's just understand for a moment the wonderful works of God. Let's just step back and, and make some observations. First, God does miracles. We've we got to remember that. God does miracles. Now, let me give you a definition of a miracle. A miracle is a supernatural work that cannot be explained by natural works of man or nature. Let me try to help you understand. God may very well intervene in your life and allow you to make all those red lights on the way to work so that you're not late. It's very possible. It's hard to exactly measure that as a miracle. You could just have hit all the red lights. The things that we're reading about here, they are beyond rationalization. She was dead for a day. And Peter says, get up. And she says, okay. Th that is not the same. And I don't want to minimize how God works in our everyday life because he does. But what I want you to recognize is God is also so powerful that he can work beyond our comprehension. He can work in ways that are just supernatural. He can change nature and he can change man. Think about it. The work of God has parted seas, calmed storms, walked on water. He has done works in Men that are beyond explanation, blind people, blind from birth at a word can see. Broken, sick, lame people can walk. Dead live again. But listen, the greatest miracle, the greatest miracle is that we can be born again. Remember Nicodemus in John 3, this conversation? Nicodemus is like, what, what are you talking about? How does this work? He's trying to rationalize something that's supernatural. Being around people, can we just admit that it's almost an impossibility for us to really change? I mean, when the old self is truly buried, and behold, we are a new creature, can we just not recognize that that doesn't just happen because we decide, hey, we're going to try harder? Can we recognize that that happens because of the supernatural power of God at work in us? You say, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say the greatest miracle that gives testimony to the gospel that reveals who God is is every one of you who are an authentic Jesus follower who are here today forever a new creature in Christ. Because you didn't do that by yourself and that doesn't just happen. It is a supernatural work of God in our lives. You say, I want to see miracles. Look around you. They're sitting beside of you. They're worshiping God next to you. Listen, that's not just like mom speak. Like, you know, you're special and you're a miracle. Listen, this is truth. God 
does miracles, and he does miracles in us. You say, well, what about these kind of miracles like we're reading about? They seem to be more frequent there, and they are, and we recognize that. And there's two main reasons, I think, for that. The first is they were signs to reveal God and his work for a specific time and a specific season. You've got to remember, they don't have a written word of God like we do today. The revelation of God came about in these signs, and it gave testimony to his authority. And so there were gifts like speaking in a language they did not know that gave testimony of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that revealed the work of God in their life. This is why in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is preaching the gospel to a Gentile, which is kind of a hard thing for them to imagine, it was really important that in verse 45... They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Verse 46, here's why. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and exalting God. It gave testimony to God's work in their life. Another reason we see less of those miracles is we just have to recognize there is a special anointing and giftedness given to the apostles. The apostle, by qualification, had to see, physically see, and be with Jesus. It is why Paul has to continually argue and kind of leads each one of those letters almost with the defense of his apostleship because of his interaction with Jesus on the Damascus Road. And so there is an anointing and a giftedness there that they bring out all of this but now listen because this is important we kind of like to make those moments our attention but I want to tell you how they describe the word of God and my favorite place to do that is Peter because we're watching Peter do a lot of these miracles right and in 2nd Peter chapter 1 Peter is describing Uh, an event we call the mountain of transfiguration. It's when Jesus goes up on the mountain, he's praying, and Moses, Elijah appear, and the voice, the audible voice of the Father speaks to the Son, and the earth shakes. Peter is present for this. I have no idea how I would respond if I was present for such a thing, but that's powerful. Can, Can we just acknowledge that's pretty powerful? And Peter comes back in chapter two or chapter one, verse nineteen, and he's talking about that experience, and he says, "Now watch this, but we have the prophetic word, your scriptures, more fully confirmed than even that experience." In other words, the word of God is a greater tool for revealing the works of God than your own experience if you were in a moment like that. That's powerful. And that ought to push us to study our Bibles. God still does miracles. We are a living miracle. And his word is a miracle that reveals who he is in our life. Second, God does miracles through his people. Isn't that cool? He doesn't have to do that. But we see that throughout the New Testament. 
God has always anointed some to work miracles through. There's Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha and the New Testament, Jesus. And Jesus sends out his disciples. And they too. And here we're reading about this special anointing that is on the apostles, especially in Acts recorded through Peter and Paul. So we get to be part of that. You say, I want to be part of a miracle. Remember what I was just telling you the greatest miracle is? You want to be part of a miracle? Proclaim the gospel and call others to repent and place saving faith in Jesus. There's no greater miracle you will ever be part of than to proclaim the gospel. We'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. Third, God does miracles to exalt himself. God does miracles to exalt himself. All of creation exists to glorify God. You may pray for a miracle, listen, for your benefit. But if you experience a genuine miracle in your life, I promise you, you are not in and of yourself at the center of its purpose. At the center of the purpose of any miracle is that God would be glorified. That his name would be made great. That we and all of creation might recognize his power and his authority and his attributes. God works miracles not to just heal, but to reveal. It's what is happening in our lives. And so in Acts chapter 5, when we're talking here about Ananias and Sapphira and this crazy thing that's happening in the church, remember they were added to the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, with Aeneas, they turned to the Lord. And with Dorcas, many believed in the Lord. And in Acts chapter 19, remember Sceva's son and all that's going on? Fear fell upon them all. The result of each of these miracles was the revelation of God and the turning of the people as they were confronted with the authority of the one true God. God does miracles to exalt himself. And if we want to see miracles, be about the work of proclaiming the glory of the name of Jesus. And you'll get in a lane that can be filled with miracles. But if you're seeking miracles for your benefit, I will tell you, you're much more likely to find false prophets and to find lies than you are truth and ultimately joy. So how do we respond to the wonderful works of God? First, worship God, not his works. Seek God and not an experience. Man has always been tempted to seek the experience and not God. We have always been tempted to exalt the work, but not the worker. And we can probably see that best here in Acts chapter 19 with these silly brothers. You know, these, these seven brothers who are noted in Scripture as exorcists. By the way, it's the only time in Scripture that the title exorcist is actually used. And I, I want you to understand something. Exorcism, in one sense, is, is real. We'll talk about it. But like what we think of it as and what we're reading here, it, it's not real. 
there's, there's no such thing. You say, what are you talking about? Let, let me break it down. So these brothers are trying to have this ritualistic process in which they're going to battle out with some demon that has possessed somebody. And we all have these like movie ideas, these TV show ideas of how that plays out. Listen, exorcist by ritual is nowhere in scripture. Let me tell you what is the authority of Jesus. It's just that. You say, what are you saying? I'm saying there's no struggle. There's never a ritual. There's never like a two-day battle for somebody's soul or body. Never happens. You know what happens? Jesus, demon, out, out. Jesus to demon, shut up, don't say another word. Quiet. There's never a battle. There's never some unruly demon who bows up to Jesus like, let me show you what I'm going to do. When Jesus sends out his apostles, there's never, there's never a fight. There's no fight to be had. It's nowhere in Scripture. There's just the authority of the name of the Most High, the name of Jesus in their life. Listen, let's go back and look at a few real quick. Luke chapter 4, verse 33 through 36. Demons can't even speak if Jesus tells them, be quiet. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of, un, of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with this Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 35, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Now listen to what happens next. Listen to this incredible battle here. Are you ready? And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. People are amazed, by the way. You know why they're amazed? These exorcists that are running around, they don't work. I mean, if they were just doing this stuff, why would they be amazed with Jesus? I mean, they get so upset with Jesus, they said, oh, he's one of them. He's got control over them. Verse 41 of Luke chapter 4, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. They can't even talk. I mean, just think about that. Anyway, and then we see that authority given to the disciples, the 70 who were sent out. Luke chapter 10, verse 17, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord! The demons are subject to us in your name. They can't even talk. It's incredible. And he said to them, listen, because <laughs> this is such a good line. He's like, the demons, you're not going to believe what happened, Jesus. Jesus was like, listen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Point is, you ain't telling me nothing I don't know. I saw when in a word, the Father cast them out of heaven and they fell like lightning. You have no idea the authority and the power of the Almighty God. And so, back to chapter 10, Luke 10, in the back part of that, verse 19, here's what Jesus says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. But listen, listen to the catch. This is really important. Nevertheless, in spite of that, 
do not rejoice in this. This is just a work. I mean, don't rejoice in that. That the spirits are subject to you? Don't rejoice in that. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you abide in me. That you have a relationship with me. In other words, don't worship the work. Worship God. Abide in him. Don't be wowed by a bunch of demons and don't be wowed by some false notion of some kind of crazy exorcist experience. Listen, none of that's real. Be wowed by a single word. But by one single word, a demon becomes clay in the hands of an almighty God. Be wowed by the holy authority of Jesus. And if God be for you, then really, who can be against you? See, listen, it certainly will not be some rogue, uncontrollable demon giving God and you a hard time if you abide in Jesus. We're notorious for worshiping the gift and not the giver, but notice that is never the end. The end is always to worship and exalt the name of Jesus, to exalt the gospel. And so respond to the wondrous works of God by being wowed by the worker, the creator, not the work or what he has created. And I'll give you a simple tell the tape in your life of how you're doing that. If you're seeking signs outside of Scripture as your primary place of revelation, you're focused on the work and not the worker. Listen, you're focused on the experience and not the worship of the revelation of God that he has given you that exalts him. If, you're, if your thought is, you know, I don't really like to read. If your thought is it's a couple of minutes in the beginning of my day to just kind of get me going, kind of give me a pep. Listen, you're missing out on the miraculous revelation of God. Worship him. Immerse yourself in the revelation of who he is and be in awe like a child before him. Second, worship God, not his people. Worship God, not his people. Seek God, not appear. God works miracles through people. And so the temptation for us is to begin to worship the vessel. I mean, this happens all the time in churches. Can I just tell you something? I'm here this morning. Because for whatever crazy reason, the Lord has called me and set me up to do this thing this morning. But I want you to know something. Throughout this room, there is a diversity of gifts that are just as wowing and just as impacting that when they are brought together in harmony and unity is a powerful demonstration of the revelation of God and his wondrous works. Don't ever look up here and see a me or see a Mike or look on TV or find somebody and think, now that's, that's the guy. Now listen, they're just a vessel. They're just a vessel. 
Worship the Lord. He is the one in which all authority and all power resides. And this was happening in the New Testament. There was a temptation for them to say, oh, I'm, man, I'm with Peter. No, no, I'm with Paul. Listen, don't fall into the trap of elevating the vessel. And so begin, listen, begin to exalt the Word of God. Let me give you the greatest example. I've been talking about this. I talked about it at the family meeting, but most of you weren't there. If that feels like a sting, it should. If you're a member of Tri-Cities Baptist Church, be part of the body. It's where we come together, we cast vision, and we go forward. John the Baptist is said by Jesus to be the greatest prophet that ever lived. Do you know how many miracles John the Baptist performed? Zero recorded. Zero. I mean... He wasn't parting seas. He wasn't like sicking bears on people. That's a cool one. I don't, I just don't know why that one came to mind, but it's a neat one. He wasn't doing any of that. Why would Jesus say John the Baptist was the greatest prophet if he didn't work the greatest miracles? By the way, people thought John the Baptist was crazy too. You know why? Because John the Baptist had the message of saying, that is Jesus. What made him... The greatest prophet wasn't him. It wasn't the miracles, the works. It was the message. Jesus is here. Think about what that means for us. Third, worship God, not yourself. Abide in Jesus and die to yourself. Abide in him. So this morning I have a pretty simple question that's asked to us of all the strange people by a demon recorded in Scripture. Evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Who are you? Who are you? See, the name of Jesus is not some miraculous formula that you can just throw out. That's what those men found out, right? You can't just say, hey, in the name of Jesus... You ever see people like that? We do that kind of stuff all the time. Just ridiculous. We run around like, whoo, Jesus, help me. Like, you're just throwing out a name. Let me tell you where the authority resides. Not just in a title, not just in a name. Listen, the authority resides in the person of Jesus. And when we abide in him through saving faith, listen, we abide in the authority of God. And it's powerful. Jesus is not a gimmick. He's not a religious formula. And listen, if you think he is, and that's all you know of him, is some religious formula that's in your life, but not something that is transforming you, listen, your end will be much worse than a beatdown that leaves you running from a house naked. Your end will be an eternal separation from God. Our authority, our power, our eternity is anchored in an abiding relationship with Jesus. The name of Jesus brought about fear and reverence, and the truth of who God is brings about humble worship in us. One day before him, every knee will bow, not because they're made to by force, but because in the revelation of who he is, they will have no other choice but to recognize God. 
We see that played out here. Those 50,000 pieces of silver basically represent one man's daily wage. Let me give you an example. If that's 1,000 men there, they burn three months of income. If there were 1,000, it was three months. They're giving up their livelihood. Jesus is worth it. And his name is to be held in high honor. And so we're going to close this morning. I'm going to ask the team to come on back up. And as we close, I'm going to simply ask you, who are you? Who are you? Are you recognized as one who abides with Jesus? Or are you still trying to go it alone? Today you are confronted by his miraculous work, his revelation, his son. And what will be your response to who you are? You will either be one who in faith who lays down his life in worship or you will be a skeptic who is here who thinks your problems are too big, your life is too broken, your marriage is too far gone, your kids are too rebellious, your needs are too big, the money is too tight. They'll find some self-centered reason to think God is not big enough for you. Church, May the wondrous works of God revealed through his word bring us to faith and repentance this morning. What I would challenge you to do right now is, as the team plays, that you would stand, you would sing, and you would make this a time of response, that you would reflect on the glory that is the one true God. At this time, would you stand Would you sing and would you make this a time of prayer? Would you make this a time of response? If you want to talk with me, I'll be down front. But I would ask that you go before the almighty God who has authority over demons, that has authority over our health, that has authority over the world and all of his creation, and that you would be in awe of him this morning.